Influential podcast dedicated to the profession of pharmacy with over 80,000 listeners worldwide. Welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. The concept of water activity. So this term water activity helps us figure out if a compound is considered aqueous or non-aqueous. Welcome to the Becoming a Pharmacy Badass podcast, where we talk about how to diversify your revenue streams, increase your net income, and optimize your operations to create the pharmacy of your dreams. I hope you enjoy and subscribe. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a extra special session of a monthly mastermind meeting. If you're in the compounding world at all, you know that there are some proposed updates to USP 795 and 797 chapters. And so when when these proposed guidelines came out, uh, if you're anything like me, you probably didn't have time to fully read them all or you read them all and you're like, okay, but where's the changes? What do I need to pay attention to? So instead of spending hours and probably misunderstanding what was proposed, doing it myself, I called up one of my favorite compounding consultants, Two Trees Consulting, to help digest all of these proposed guidelines and really narrow it down for me and you to help us to understand what are going to be the most impactful changes to USP 795 and 797. Uh, If you are not a compounder, this procession is probably not for you, but you probably know a compounder and feel free to share it with them. We have Dr. Amy Summers with us, who is a fantastic compounding pharmacist that um, knows just about everything about everything when it comes to compounding. And I'll let her give herself a a formal introduction, but she is going to take us through and really uh, digest this all for us. Let us know what are the proposed changes, which ones are are good, which ones maybe, you know, maybe aren't so good. And then how you can comment and how you can maybe affect some change because these are just proposed. These are not final at this point. So I'd like to welcome uh, Dr. Amy Summers in. Um, Amy, please give um, everybody a quick preview of or review of, you know, where you are and what your background is. And then uh, we'll, we'll dive into the content. Sure. Thank you, Lisa. I am Amy Summers. I'm a pharmacist graduate of uh, San Francisco back in the days, and I was one of the first to get that BCSCP credential. I am involved pretty much straight up in compounding from uh, the 503A side to even the 503B side. I've been a managing director of a 503B. I've been a pharmacist in charge at a handful of 503As. I'm a consultant full-time now, and um, working with Two Trees Consulting um, is a great place to start if you have any um, you know, questions or you're struggling with something, this is a good place to start. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. I know a lot of pharmacies are concerned about accreditation, but you know, I don't think accreditation necessarily is for everyone. I think it's a great idea, but just being compliant with your state rules and laws and understanding, you know, the guidelines I think is, is really critical. And then two trees consulting can help you in setting up a lab expanding, expanding a lab, expanding services. You know, if you've been doing non-sterile and maybe you see an opportunity in sterile, all those kinds of things. So please feel free to reach out um, over to May, uh, who's my main contact over at two trees, but she has a wonderful consultants in all different kinds of little niches. Cause you know, compounding niches down even further, uh, like you said, 503A, 503B, sterile, non-sterile, all those kinds of things. Um, so Amy, you're, I, I kind of gave you a big task of, of digesting these, these updates and kind of, uh, dumbing it down, if you will, for, for us that, you know, really don't live and breathe the guidelines per se. We might, you know, live and breathe the day-to-day workings in a compounding lab, but, um, Um, Take us through on what this looks like. I'm going to be monitoring for questions. So if you have any live questions, if you're watching this live, feel free to put it into the chat and I will uh, break in and make sure that that Amy gets the question. But otherwise, uh, I'm looking forward to sitting back and and listening to these reviews and um, maybe get a little mad because there's probably some proposals that we're not going to like. But um, I'm going to turn it over to you and let you take it away and uh, give a good summary for us. Thank you, Lisa. So uh, welcome to the webinar. We are going to discuss the proposed revisions to USP 795 and 797, which came out in um, September. So um, I'm not going to be able to give an exhaustive list of all of the changes proposed, but I am going to do my best to highlight the major 
changes and even some of the minor ones. So um, starting with 795, let's, let's start from the beginning. Um, as you might have been aware, there were some proposed changes back in 2019 that was remanded in 2020. And a new 795 chapter has been proposed. So basically, as I mentioned, we're going to briefly go over those. And I just want to also just globally point out that a lot of these changes were made to clarify, you know, certain things that were on the, the current chapter, but there's clarifications made, there's maybe additional information. And of course, the bulk of the changes focus on BUD assignments or limits and this new concept called water activity. Um, otherwise, the uh, 2021 proposal for 795 is fairly consistent with the 2019 remanded version. So if you had any hand at reading that previously, then you might um, be in a good spot with this proposal. Um, so anyhow, the, um, the first section of the 795 chapter, you know, it's the introduction and scope. So there's a few main changes to look into. I, I want to take a step back and just, um, you know, as a non-sterile compounder, if you're wondering what is a non-sterile compound, you know, it might be basic to you like an oral suspension or a topical cream, but I just wanted to point this out that it does specify otic, nasal irrigations, including, you know, routes for the mouth, rectum, sinus, cavity, so, sort of local preparations. Those are uh, what, what are known as non-sterile. And then in a minute, we'll get into to sterile. But I just, I, I just wanted to clarify that to, so that you guys knew, you know, these types of things are included as a non-sterile preparation. So in the same section, um, they talk about personnel and settings, and they added something on dispensing requirements. So basically it just says that we need to be proactive to identify and remedy any potential problems, not just when you're preparing and storing and packaging your compound, but even dispensing and transporting CNSPs or um, non-sterile preparations. So um, we basically just wanna follow applicable laws and regulations. Uh, when we're compounding. And we also need to now designate someone that's going to be what's called the responsible person or the, the designated person that's going to oversee uh, non-sterile compounding operations. And um, I'm not sure if you guys had any interest or background in hazardous drug compounding, but they've taken that whole thing out of, of this new chapter and they are referring you to go to uh, USP 800. And for radiopharmaceuticals, that's gonna be chapter 825. And um, there's another thing that they, uh, they also take out, um, anything regarding administration, which will be a much more interesting topic when we get to the sterile portion of this discussion. Um, but anyhow, uh, is there anything else I wanna say? Um, basically like there's some other definitions. Um, I was in a board of pharmacy meeting one time and, and someone was asking is flavoring a manufactured drug product considered compounding. And absolutely that is an example of compounding. Um, splitting tablets is not, but, but, um, flavoring would be if you just have like a regular manufactured suspension and you want to put it like a cherry flavor into it, that is considered compounding. And essentially it's because these flavors, they're, um, their multiple component systems are really complex and they actually do interfere with the stability of a product. So I just wanted to kind of point that out, so, sort of a sidebar, but I think it's important to understand that. Um, the next section talks about personnel qualification. And there's a couple of things that we want to point out here in that basically the chapter gets a bit more descriptive in the training and competency requirements here. It clarifies that all the personnel involved in compounding or in the direct oversight of preparing and dispensing must initially be trained and must demonstrate competency before being allowed to perform their job duties. So translate that, that means pharmacists out there, um, you need to be understanding and actually competent in, in these operations before it's, it even says here, before you're, you're dispensing. So you're, uh, you wanna make sure that even as a pharmacist, um, you can perform, you can, you know how to use that mixer, you know how to use that analytical balance. Um, you understand a lot of these, um, you know, principles that we're talking about in compounding. So just essentially know that if you're supervising compounding, you need to be trained and competent before you do your, your duties. And then you need to repeat these kinds of trainings and competencies annually. So um, that basically just needs to get translated into your operations and, and procedures. And, um, I think that's all I need to say on this slide here. So 
personal. Really quick, Amy, I have have a question that's come in. Um, So for pharmacists, if you had some sort of training in pharmacy school, you have like a compounding lab or something like that, is is that history okay? Or is there something that you have to do more recent before you can go in and start dispensing the compound? So there was a question of like yeah. that school training versus maybe on the job training. Well, I have to say, it's nice that your school actually trained you. Uh, a lot of schools don't even have these sort of formal trainings, um, but that's good to hear that that's, that's at least happening now than back in the day when I was going to school. Um, well, okay, so to back it up, you need to be trained and competent in your first, your own facilities procedures. Okay. So maybe you learn generally how to make a suspension in your, um, you know, your, your school's compounding lab, or even, even if you went to like a fancy, um, lab in somewhere in in America, that was whatever. But essentially, if I can answer this right, you need to be trained and competent in what you do at your facility with your equipment, your specific procedures and your personnel. And so, I hope that answers your question. There's nothing wrong in having, and it's actually really good to have sort of a knowledge base going in before you start your your uh, your role at this facility. But when you're in this this new role at this facility, you really want to be competent in what you do there. I hope that answers that. Yeah, I think that answered it perfectly. You you okay. need to be trained on your equipment in your lab because you might have been trained at a you know, an EMP under a certain brand. And now you have a different brand in your lab, you know, that kind of thing. And so best to go through all of that training and documentation first before you start making and dispensing products. And, you know, that's one of the things that Two Trees Consulting can provide is help come in there, administer, maybe if you're doing sterile company, administer the media fill or actually go through your procedures, show you how you're doing your stuff there and do it right. So there might be some sort of like a guided training that might be interesting for, for practice sites to, to implement. I don't know if that's something interesting, but okay, moving on. I have a slide up here on the next section called personnel hygiene and garbing. So the things to remember here are that um, the per- there's, a, there's a, a section called personnel preparation. And this discusses the appropriate hand hygiene and cleanliness. And basically before it was like, you know, thou shall not have any jewelry on or piercings or or what have you. Um, And you don't want to have those things. That's true. You want, you want to, you know, make sure like your nails are trimmed and clean and all of that. But really what they're trying to say here is they're trying to give a provision. So like, let's say like you have a wedding ring and it's like on there, that thing is not coming off. There's, there might be a provision for you that as long as you're not going to disrupt the, um, the environment that you can maintain a, um, you know, the environment specifications for bio burden, that you might be able to get this provision. The, the one thing to keep in mind though, is that that needs to be documented. So if it's like Amy wears her wedding ring, when she goes in to, to do some non-sterile compounding and it doesn't come off then I'm going to get this written provision in my training folder or my own personal file. And that'll say that. And there might be some kind of assessment or risk assessment saying the fact that she's wearing this doesn't affect it because it's covered properly with gloves, something like that. Um, So another change that was come in was the garbing and gloving requirements. It adds that garb should be removed when leaving the compounding area. So don't just, you know, keep your gown on and go eat lunch with it on. Nope. Don't leave the area with it on. You can hang it up and you can reuse it for the remaining of the shift, but just don't let it leave the area. I hope that's clear. Okay, next, building and facilities. This was, you know, from the current chapter, maybe there's not so much uh, guidance in this, but this this 2021 proposal is making sure that you know that there must be a designated space for non-sterile compounding. The area wear a gown it's really it's um it's really hot so um just to make sure that you know um you know what to wear and what you you know sort of the do's and don'ts um in that facility so um 
Okay, next topic is cleaning and sanitizing. There is a new table and it just discusses the minimum frequencies. It just becomes more defined. It says like, you know, clean up, clean and be sanitary before compounding, after each compounding, um, you know, clean your floors on a certain daily basis. Um, and maybe when there's spills, you know, such, I, I just recommend you to go and study it to get those um, more detailed uh, examples of what they want. But otherwise it's pretty straightforward. Uh, equipment and components. So there's a few interesting things here. Um, weighing, measuring other manipulations of an API, which is that active pharmaceutical ingredient or like a powder, right? So um, if you're working with powders, especially ones that can generate airborne contamination, you really need to be uh, compounding in something like a containment ventilated enclosure. Um, so these things, they must be certified annually. And, um, you know, there, there might be some questions like, well, do I need to compound in this, this hood, if you will, for everything and USP, I'm sorry, um, USP, they do have a lot of, um, you know, basically they want you to, to conduct a risk assessment for answering that. So you need to sort of figure that out and see, um, you know, should I, or shouldn't I, but at least for powders, you need to be putting those in, um, you know, weighing them in a contained, um, containment, containment ventilated enclosure. And so a uh, new thing uh, that's spelled out, uh, at least from the current chapter, is that APIs must comply with the USP monograph if available, and they must be manufactured in an FDA registered facility, and they must be accompanied by a valid C of A. So don't just go to the grocery store and buy that excipient or, um, excuse me, any active ingredient. Um, you know, uh, excipients, they should be obtained from a registered facility. Uh, by the FDA, but um, really they're, the federal and even state boards of firms here are cracking down on this. They, they really are concerned with what materials are you working with. So just be cognizant of that. Um, and then there's another interesting thing, packages without labeled supplier expiration dates on that actual uh, container. You need to put a, a, a shall not use beyond three years from receipt. So then you also have to know when you received it. So you should put on the label, uh, received on whatever today, let's say October 14th, can't use it beyond, you know, 2024 of this date. So Amy, um, yeah. Amy, quick question on the suppliers. So I know back in my pharmacy when I was doing vet compounding and I, um, I know obviously a lot of people do vet compounding now they use, um, for example, a packaged peanut butter or, or prepackaged dog treats that, that they then you know, pulverize and like put the active ingredients into, um, can you use food type products like that in order to, to use in compounding? Um, or does yeah. it, you know, does it have to be from an FDA registered facility if it's okay in the food, you know, the food store and you're going to add and manipulate it right. to add the active in it. So as it's written here, if it's the active ingredient, so that's not this case, but if it was your active, it has to be from an FDA registered facility. If it's your excipient, like a peanut butter or something like that, it just says should. Okay. So if you are going to get it somewhere, how do you know that quality of that peanut butter? I know it's, now we're getting into like, I mean, is, is this peanut butter going to turn rancid within 30 days of opening or is it, how long is it? But I, I don't know um, th those nuances, but each, the general and best answer, especially as a consultant, I don't want to blindly say, yes, you can do this. It's okay. I can't tell you that, but I would do what's like a, a risk assessment and make sure that you have properly qualified the supplier that, that you get this peanut butter or this non API ingredient from, and you, you, you've looked at their quality system, even from like a, a survey. And this is a whole other discussion, by the way, I could talk <laughs> <laughs> a whole hour about how to qualify a supplier and what to look for when you, maybe that's a good topic for another time. Yeah, but, absolutely. Um, yeah, this is, this is, and it is a hot topic. I will tell you that the, the boards of pharmacy and the FDA, I mean, they, they are, they are really concerned and not just with non-sterile company, but sterile company, they, they basically have a document called know your supplier. So it just means like, if you're going to use something, especially for APIs, but I would even argue that for your excipients, anything that's going to go into this compound, you've got to be confident in its quality. So that's the, the sort of global generic answer. And I know that's always hard for someone to hear. They want, they want to know exactly what to do, but I, I can't give you more than that. We, we might need to dig in more and, and help you more specifically to answer okay. that question, but um, it's a good question. Thank you. 
Um, so we're on to master formulas. There wasn't much here. It's just basically you need to have a master formulation and you should have, you need to have a compounding record, um, in place. And there's just a box. It's a nice little visual that you can go and check out. Um, next is release inspections. So this, this section basically talks about, you know, um, you know, what are, what's required to release your compound. There's not a lot of content changes here in this section, but the things to remember are that you have to confirm that your sterile compound, excuse me, non-sterile preparation, um, that the, the labeling matches your compounding record, right? So that it, that it is actually what you intended to make. And then you need to conduct some visual inspections on these um, preparations. So determine if the physical appearance is as expected and then actually perform a visual inspection of that container closure. So like if it's like a, a suspension, it's not just open and, and potential to leak or something like that. It doesn't need to be like a, um, like a USP 1207, 1207 um, you know, container closure integrity test. It's just a visual confirmation that, yeah, this, this is closed well and it's not going to leak or, or open such like that. Um, and then there's other things that you need to assess per each compound. So I, there's no global answer for you, but like things that you're, that you might also be interested in, you know, pH might come to mind if you're, you're doing like a liquid or something like that. Um, eventually you want to study, does this, does the thing that I've made, is it, is it meeting the potency requirements? So conducting an assay a test on that might be important, but you need to, again, conduct a, a risk assessment to see how often or, or for which ones you want to do that for. Uh, labeling. I, I mentioned a minute ago that you need to make sure whatever's on your label needs to match what was actually made. Um, th this section just adds clarification that the label on each container, it must display certain information prominently and legibly. And then it also added that if, if, um, you know, if you can't fit everything, then there's something called labeling, which is like the outer package. Uh, that whatever you can't fit on the actual immediate containers label, you can use like an outer packaging label to uh, add to that. And then, of course, I, I mentioned a minute ago about um, you know checking the master formula and the compounding record against the medication order against your label, and all of that should be cohesive. So I hope that makes sense. Okay, now the moment we've all been waiting for is establishing BUDs. BUDs. So. This is where the bulk of the 795 changes came about. And a lot of the time was spent here since that appeal happened. And, uh, you know, section 10.1 and 10.2 didn't really change much, but it basically talks about how um, expiration dates apply to manufactured drugs and BUDs or beyond use dates apply to compounded preparations. Um, it explains that the studies for conventionally manufactured drugs are much more exhaustive than even those for compounded preparations. Um, and then it also broadly states, uh, you know, section 10.2 states that uh, parameters con to consider when establishing a BUD are basically things that can impact the stability of your preparation. So they talk about something called water activity or water, you know, water content that, that sounds right in our heads, but like water activity has a definite effect on stability. So does chemical and physical uh, stability, compatibility with the container closure system, um, degradation of the container closure system, microbial pro proliferation potential, which will happen more if you have a, a high water activity compound that, you, that you've made. And um, even deviating from the essential compounding instructions, that can even affect stability. So um, I just wanted to uh, mention that no freelancing. If, you're, if your compound says, you know, these are the steps in this order, you need to follow it that way. Otherwise, it might even affect your stability. Um, so here is the table that is probably one of the most looked upon areas of the, of the new USP 795 proposed chapter. Uh, this is the one that everyone goes to immediately and they're wondering, you know, what, what's changed and what's, you know, what do I need to know? So I would say that, um, you know, BUD limits are explained by the type of preparation in the absence of a USP compounded preparation monograph or a specific stability study. So in other words, these are your limits. You're not gonna go beyond these, um, especially in the absence of a stability study or in the absence of a USP compounded monograph. <clears throat> and I wanna note that these default BUD limits were not really changed from the 2019 remanded version, but the committee, the committee basically uh, 
they gave a lot of rationale documents as to why these limits are proposed. And they, um, I guess one such rationale that I want to talk about right now is the concept of water activity. So this term water activity helps us figure out if a compound is considered aqueous or non-aqueous. Because before it was like, oh, for non-aqueous preparations, the beauty is this. Well, what is aqueous? What is non-aqueous? That's what this term is going to help us answer. So if you know which category that your compound falls into, then you can use this table in a meaningful way. And USP does uh, provide a table, and I'll, I'll give you an example in a minute here, about some examples of, of what that looks like. So for aqueous dosage forms, they're defined as having a water activity of greater than or equal to 0.6. And this basically just means that it has a lot of free or available water in the compound, the finished compound. And these compounds, they participate in hydrolysis reactions. Um, they support microbial growth. So conceptually speaking, they're going to have a shorter BUD, right? So emulsions, gels, creams, solutions, sprays, or suspensions with a water activity of 0.6 or greater, they're going to fit into those aqueous dosage form uh, categories. And then, um, so looking at the top half of this table, that's basically what it discusses is the aqueous dosage forms. And then you can see that within the aqueous dosage forms, they categorize them into two types, basically the non-preserved and the preserved. And so um, they're given a shorter BUD limit uh, than non-aqueous because of, you know, conceptually what we mentioned about microbial growth and being more reactive. And so on the lower half of that table, we're looking at the non-aqueous dosage forms with a water activity of less than 0.6. And so these include, again, it can be a liquid, it can be um, another non-aqueous formulation like a capsule, a tablet, granules, powders, suppositories, trochies, topicals, et cetera. But the, the kicker is it's less than 0.6 water activity. So um, uh, oral non-aqueous liquids, they're assigned a 90 BUD um, day. And um, basically for the others, it's a 180 day limit. And uh, liquids, conceptually, they get a shorter limit because of degradation kinetics. They happen a little bit faster than solids and semi-solids. And so this risk assess this is basically a risk assessment that the committee settled on. They didn't just, I mean, they didn't supposedly dream up these. They, they really took a lot of thought into um, here's what we need to settle on and here's why. And so that's um, hopefully it, it, in your mind, you're seeing that there's a little bit of more flexibility for all of the preserved aqueous preparations as compared to the current chapter. And maybe you can see that there's a little bit flexibility for the non-aqueous as compared to the remanded chapter. I don't know if you'll feel that way, but that's um, I think that was their intention. And so um, it's important to remember that these are maximum limits. Okay, you don't just, uh, oh, I'm making a non-preserved aqueous dosage form, so I'm going to assign it 14 days. You need to actually consider that there might be another reason to make it shorter. Um, so you just need to keep that in mind and do your due diligence. Your, your board of pharmacy will certainly expect that of you. At least they do over here in California where I'm based out of. Um, so water activity, I promised that I would give you a little more info on that. USP gives you a nice little table, and so I basically... Um, you know, uh, just sort of summarize some of the things that were on here, but the uh, the description for some of the top examples of non-aqueous. So you might see like a lollipop generally has a 0.46. So that is less than 0.6. So it's under the non-aqueous category. Um, and then here's some other examples of aqueous. So maybe you've got like a cream, it's an oil and water emulsion, um, it's 0.96. So, um, and that's interesting here, look at this emollient cream, even if it's in petrolatum and mineral oil, it's still made it up to 0.98. So just sort of study these. And I, I know your question then might be, do we have to actually be testing these? And no, you don't need to test them. Um, I think it even says that in the chapter, but. I think if you were confused or were actually wondering and really not sure, then you might want to test it. Um, and not might, you probably should test it, as, especially as a consultant. You know, I, I don't want to tell you like you don't need to do that, but you really should um, consider if you can't back up what you do with science or a reference, you need to do something to show them what is the water activity? How can you assign it um, if you don't know? So, um, I guess one thing that was coming to my mind is, you know, some of these new proprietary bases that certain suppliers might be touting. 
um, you know, I, I would just start looking into that more and seeing like, is that proprietary base? Is it really non aqueous? Like the comp, the finished compound that I make, is it really going to be a non aqueous thing or, or is it, I, I don't know. You, you might need to, um, conduct an assessment on that. So um, the next thing uh, to remember is what I was hinting a minute ago that shorter BUDs may be required. Okay. Just because we have these limits to refer to doesn't mean that it's always going to be, you know, stable for up to that time. So um, essentially, let's say you have a component that might have um, a shorter BUD or expiration than your compound. You need to assign a BUD that reflects that shortest BUD or expiration of that component. You follow me? Um, and and if, you're, if you know that your preparation is prone to rapid degradation, like let's say in a powder form, it's good. And the capsule can go for 180 days. But once you put it in water, maybe it's a rapid degradation and it's known, maybe there's, you know, it's well known and, and documented in the literature, you should really assess, should I be assigning this, this BUD limit per USP, or do I also need to consider, uh, you know, some of the actual properties of that API. Um, and if you are uh, certain, you know, ingredients are sensitive and you don't have the data, the default limits, they don't protect you from performing your due diligence. So in other words, you're going to get asked by, um, you know, your board of pharmacy to explain yourself. How did you arrive at this? There should be a rationale. Even in your master formula, it says that you need to provide the rationale for the BUD, the reference. So um, how about assigning a BUD from a USP monograph? You basically, um, you know, there's several USP NF compounded preparation monographs that have been studied for stability and you can reference those uh, and assign the BUD from there in place of those limits that we just previously discussed. So this means if you're compounding from that, that USP NF formulation and the directions, then um, you are assigning the BUD listed in the monograph and you're not going to exceed that. Now, extending BUDs with stability information. This is pretty interesting here. So um, what about if you've conducted a stability study or you want to refer to one from a literature? Um, there's a few things to keep in mind. There, if you study that table, um, there, you know, uh, of, the, of the actual uh, limits, uh, we're, we're limited in some way. But even if you're going to conduct a stability study, the committee concluded after much deliberation and assessment that your stability study must be stability indicating, and it is required to establish an extended beyond use date. In other words, potency over time testing doesn't cut it because it doesn't differentiate from the compound of interest from the degradants and excipients. So it's definitely um, expected if you're trying to extend the beyond use date of a non-sterile preparation. Um, but what we see here in this proposal is even if you do conduct a stability study on your compound, you will be limited to this 180 day maximum. So even if you see that it's stable for a whole year, there's a cap that's put on. And this cap was put here for the, uh, basically a variety of reasons. But uh, the committee stated that, you know, in 503A compounding operation settings, we're supposed to be doing this for a specific patient that's intended for immediate uh, administration or, or even short-term uh, administration following storage. So, so really, we're starting to get out of the scope and, and we're not following heightened quality standards that GMP facilities follow. And um, even though the stability studies are, you know, from stability indicating methods, they're still not as rigorous as those conducted in a GMP setting. And so for these reasons, the committee did put a cap on 180 days for extending the BUD. And um, for aqueous non-sterile compounds, so you're gonna need to also perform an antimicrobial effectiveness test. And that needs to be conducted at least at the end of the proposed BUD in order to extend it to validate that your preservative system is still working and you don't end up with a contaminated product. And it's not uncommon for preservatives to be inactivated by a pH change or reactions that can occur with the preparation or container closure system itself. So for aqueous preparations, those that have a water activity that's uh, equal to or above 0 0.6, they already provide an environment where microbes can proliferate. So if you, you, you would be able to do like a bracketing study for your compound, if you carry out, you know, let's say you want to have a, a lot of different, I don't know, testosterone cream, you, you, you carry a lot of different concentrations, then 
you would study the high and the low and you would see that the preservative system also works on these extremes. And so then you can, you know, hopefully save some, some investment funds there. Um, I want, we still have a lot more to cover. So I want to keep moving if possible, uh, USP 797. So we finally made it. Let's talk about these proposed changes. So something very interesting here about, um, actually, hang on a second. In my notes, I have it. Uh, the definition of compounding. I wanted to start by saying that the definition of compounding in USP aligns more with the FDA's 503A definition, meaning it doesn't include the concept of administration, okay? So as per section 1.2, if, you, if you're gonna go and look this up, I'm, I'm, I'm reading it here from my notes. It says, for the purpose of this chapter, administration means the direct application of a sterile medication to a single patient by injecting, infusing, or otherwise providing a sterile medication in its final form. So administration of a medication is out of the scope of this chapter, okay? So I also wanna talk about this section 1.4 which states compounding does not include mixing, reconstituting, or other such acts that are performed in accordance with the directions contained in approved labeling provided by the product's manufacturer and other manufacturer directions. Um, so essentially uh, preparing a conventionally manufactured sterile product in accordance with the directions of those of that approved labeling is out of the scope of USP 797. Um, it's, and you got to meet a few things. So it has to be a single dose for an individual patient. The approved labeling has to include information on the diluent, resultant strength, container closure system, and the storage time. So let's say you're going to go off, you're going to, um, let me just give you an example so you know what, what I'm really saying here. Let's say Remicade. You're, the labeling says that you're going to reconstitute a 100 mg um, vial with 10 mils of sterile water for injection. Then you obtain a concentration of 10 mg per mil. You use a syringe with a, a certain gauge needle. You dilute it into a 250 mil sterile, you know, normal saline bag. And the infusion should begin within three hours of reconstitution. This is what that that FDA labeling says. And if you do this, this is not called compounding. This is called administration. And it's out of the scope of 797 now. So um, infusion must be administered interven intravenously for, you know, at least that it just keeps going on with that example. But I just want to point out that that, um, you know, it's not considered compounding anymore. I think people might have some major concerns about um, quality here. And, um, and then others might want to think that, that this might be easier, like a, a way to avoid some of these regulations or, or standards rather. Um, but just, just be careful here. And, um, you know, USP is not a board of pharmacy. They are not the FDA. They're, they're not the ones that are regulating you. So just make sure even, even if this chapter does become um, actually approved, you know, is your state board going to also align with this? Because maybe they won't. Um, but that, that was just something interesting that I found in uh, just the definition of compounding has been changed. Um, so the overview, I put this slide in here just kind of as a general overview, but most of the changes is, as in 795, they're focusing more on the, the BUD assignments. There's a, a many, uh, there's lots of minor changes that are made throughout all the sections, um, but, but really we're all basically just focusing on these uh, BUD changes. So what's outside the scope, similarly as in uh, 795, with 797, we're not gonna be talking about hazardous, we're not gonna be talking about radio pharmaceuticals, and now we're not gonna be talking about administration of compounds, sterile compounds. So, um, and then other things to note, repackaging, um, that has a whole other chapter to look into, and that isn't, um, that's out of the scope of this as well. So immediate use CSP requirements, there's a couple interesting things to remember here that um, basically compounding CSPs for direct and immediate administration is not subject to the requirements for category one, two, or three. And you know what? I feel like I did a disservice and I didn't explain um, myself a little bit here. So um, let me back up here. So essentially this new chapter, they've got something called category three, and I will be introducing it a little bit better uh, soon, hopefully in my notes here, but um, essentially it's, it's, it's going to be a lot uh, uh, to do. So 
talking about immediate use CSP requirements, basically we have to follow aseptic technique and processes. They got to follow the SOPs. Um, you got to make sure that you prevent mix-ups. Uh, one new criteria that was added in this proposal is that personnel preparing the immediate use CSP, they must be trained and demonstrate competency in aseptic technique and processes as it relates to, to this, because, you know, it, even if it is in an emergency situation, you know, you still want to preserve, um, and, and not be so, um, what's the better word for dirty, but you don't want to add bio burden. You don't want to make something that could be sterile into a non-sterile thing, just because you're in a hurry. You want to be able to follow those appropriate processes that you've been trained and competent. in. so, um, the pre preparation is performed in accordance with evidence-based information for physical and chemical compatibility. So you're following some kind of reference here. Um, uh, the preparation involves not more than three different sterile products, any unused starting component from a single dose container must be discarded after preparation. So a lot of this is still, um, you know, similar to the current chapter. Um, and then one thing to note here is that administration must begin within four hours instead of one hour following the start of the preparation. So it seems like there's a little bit of flexibility added here um, it, with regard to that. But otherwise, most of this was um, the same. So now I would like to introduce the concept of category one, two, and three. So the current version of 797, as you might recall, it categories something called low, medium, and high risk CSPs. And then the 2019 proposed um, version, it, it introduced this concept of category one and category two. And these categories did not change, but they added this new category called category three that's a bit distinguished. And essentially, these categories are primarily based on a risk assessment that accounts for the state of the environmental control under which they're compounded. So basically, how dirty or clean is your environment? Um, the probability of microbial growth during the time that you know, it's going to be stored. So how long is this thing going to be stored? Uh, the time period in which they must be used. And so the 2021 proposal is a bit different than the 2019 in that Here's this new, you know, category three. So essentially category three CSPs, they get to enjoy extended beyond use dates for up to 180 days, but they need to meet additional requirements. And there's a lot of them. Um, and they're most, um, mostly in alignment. Honestly, they look a little bit like CGMP requirements that uh, 503Bs have to follow. Uh, but for example, if you're going to go into category three, which again, if you're trying to extend your BUD, uh, beyond the limits, you need to be testing sterility. You need to test endotoxins if applicable. You need to perform personnel qualification more frequently. We're talking every three months. Um, you must use sterile garb, all sterile garb. You uh, can't show any skin in that room. Uh, sporicides for cleaning must be done weekly. Uh, there's a much more intensive environmental monitoring program and, uh, you have to confirm your stability through an, a stability indicating study. So this is a lot of hoops to jump through. Um, there is a cap. And so basically you can't go beyond, um, what that cap is. The committee didn't want it to be open-ended kind of much like what we talked about earlier. So here's sort of a breakdown for personnel qualification. Um, and I, I tried to, you know, show kind of what we're living right now versus what was proposed but got remanded versus what's proposed now going forward. So, um, you know, comparing the chapter to the 2019 proposal to the 2021, we basically see that we need to perform personnel qualification every six months for category one and two and category threes every three months for personnel who compound those category threes. Um, and this gives compounders an opportunity to identify the deficiencies in garbing and competency, and sorry, compounding process to mitigate potential contamination excursions and even uh, the CSP sterility failures. So uh, taking a look at the chapter, we see that USP distinguishes the hand hygiene and garbing competency from aseptic manipulation competency. And you got to note that there is a zero tolerance for CFUs recovered from the hand hygiene and garbing competency. So um, we must show that we can gown up and that we're not going to contaminate our garb. And that for, you know, the aseptic manipulation competency, this includes the media fill, the glove fingertip testing and surface testing of a work surface at the completion of the media fill. So um, you can have up to three CFUs for both. 
And again, training and competency applies to pharmacists that are overseeing the compounding operations, not just technicians, the ones that are doing it. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, let's move on to minimum garbing requirements. So the minimum garbing requirements for preparing category one and category two, they include the low lint garment with sleeves that fit snugly around the, the wrists and an enclosed neck. So those are your, your gowns, low lint covers for shoes, low lint cover for, you know, the head, um, that also covers the ears as well. And if applicable, uh, you know, facial hair, uh, cover, uh, low lint face mask, um, sterile powder-free gloves. And, um, and so basically, um, that's pretty much the, the, um, changes there. And so going on to the minimum requirements for category three, this is pretty interesting. So you, if, if you are doing category three, uh, CSP, so basically, in other words, you want to make a sterile preparation with a longer beyond use date than those limits that we're going to discuss here in a minute. Um, there's additional garbing requirements and you have to meet them at all times. That's the kicker at all times. So this goes for all personnel, regardless of whether CSPs are even compounded on that particular day. So if a, if you're doing category three, exposed skin in the buffer room is not allowed. Your face and neck must be covered fully. And you take a look at the picture to kind of really get the idea here. Um, so there's no exposed skin allowed. All low lint garb must be sterile and uh, disposable garbing items. They must not be reused. And if you're doing a laundered garbing service, um, which might be interesting to, to Im implement, they need to be using a validated sterilization cycle that you, you know, review and make sure that it's, it's appropriate. So, um, let's check out our facilities. So there's a minimum PEC placement if we're looking at uh, category one, um, you know, it can be located in an unclassified area without an anteroom or a buffer room. Um, and that is the, that's when you're going to do those category one CSPs with those shorter beyond use dates. And um, for category two or three, your CSPs, the PEC or your hood must be located in an ISO class five positive pressure buffer room with an ISO class eight positive pressure anteroom. You can make this more strict if you want to have an ISO 7 anteroom, that's fine. But these are the minimum requirements, right? And so in this picture for category two or three, you don't have to do it this way exactly. You can have, um, you can even have an anteroom that's clean and an anteroom that's dirty. So there's, there's some special things that you can uh, do, or you can just have a line of demarcation like it's shown here. Um, and then also there's a couple little PEC or primary engineering control terminologies, um, just to make sure that you guys understand that an isolator, when we're talking about isolator, it doesn't just mean your typical glove box. This is the kind that like big pharma uses, um, and they've got their own decontamination systems built in and, and there's no, it, it's basically a full enclosed system to the outside world. So that's a bit different than, um, what, uh, we had previously, uh, defined in the last chapter. So, um, microbiological air and surface monitoring. Let's talk about that. But, um, <clears throat> I did a, a quick comparison here as to the current versus the remanded versus the newly proposed. So, um, there's no major changes to these procedures for viable air and surface sampling from the 2019 proposed version, um, for categories one and two, the vial, uh, viable air sampling, they must be conducted in all classified areas every six months and service sampling is conducted monthly. Okay. So for category three, this is much more intensive. You need to be doing that viable air monthly and uh, your surface sampling in each classified area must be at least weekly. Uh, additionally for category three, a surface sample must be taken inside the PEC after compounding each batch. So, um, and prior to cleaning and disinfecting. So no cheating. Um, and category three is every three months for personnel who compound category three CSPs. Uh, the def definition of a batch is also important to understand. Um, and there's a glossary term for that. And um, additional samples basically tell you what's going on in the PEC from a contamination standpoint. So during the time of compounding, so 
a lot of the language is very similar, but you really want to make sure that you have passing test results. So that gives you, you confident confidence that your PEC was operating under a seat of control and that personnel were exhibiting good aseptic technique, if that makes sense, uh, during the time of compounding. So keeping in mind, uh, microbiological identification testing would now only be required if the results of those samples were out of specification. Um, so Let's see here, cleaning, disinfecting, and applying a sporicide. I wanna talk quickly about how um, basically things must be low linting and they should be disposable. Anything that's used in your PEC must be sterile. Um, you need to basically uh, designate your mops or your reusable types of, of tools and uh, just dedicate them and, and show where they're, where they're used. Um, and then the sporicide for category three, that's been modified in this proposal. So you need to apply that weekly instead of monthly. So it's a bit more intense. Master formula and company records. I'm trying to go quickly here. So uh, company records have similar requirements and they are recorded um, just as the prescription and medication order or label. So all that needs to be cohesive, but it's a nice little box that you can go and check out to see what's required. Um, let's move along. I really want to get so visual inspection. Just know that you have to visually inspect your CSP and verify that it's of appropriate quality. So, um, you know, make sure and uh, that your final preparation is good. So sterility testing, some category two and all category three CSPs require sterility testing according to USB 71. Um, if sterility testing is performed, the minimum quantity of each container to be tested for the um, for each media is specified in that chapter 71. Um, and then table two and the number of containers required to be tested in relation to the batch size. So you can refer to that. One thing I want to point out is that the maximum batch size for all CSPs requiring sterility testing is now going to be limited to 250 units. So this rationale is based on the low threshold for test samples as part of the testing process. Basically, if you, if you understand contamination, you might not contaminate every single vial or every single unit that you've made. Maybe it only happens in a few. So the probability of catching those contaminated units is pretty low. And then you're already only sampling a certain amount. So um, it, it basically was, again, another risk assessment from USP where they came up and, and realized that we need to cap this at 250 units and beyond on this, then you really need to um, consider, uh, you know, that you're impinging into a more of a manufacturing type of setting. So uh, bacterial endotoxin testing, this talks about the requirement for endotoxin testing. It's basically required for category two and category three CSPs that are prepared from non-sterile components. Um, there's a few other details there to look at, but I really want to get to this BUD part here before we adjourn. So um, establishing a BUD, essentially when establishing a BUD for a CSP, uh, compounders must consider parameters that may affect stability. And so they include chemical and physical stability properties of the formulation, the compatibility of that container closure system with the finished preparation in there. You know, there's leachables, that's a concept, there's interactions, there's adsorption, there's extractables, there's, you know, all, all these things can affect stability. So, um, and with regards to sterility factors that affect stability, you've got to consider things that are, um, uh, like the clean, like how, your environment, you know, how is this CSP being prepared? Is it in a clean room suite, which is a much more controlled area than an SCA, the aseptic processing and sterilization method that you're using, are you using terminal sterilization, which has a much better, a higher sterility assurance level than if you're doing aseptic processing, which is like your typical use a filter or go sterile to sterile without a filter, you know, a terminal sterilization method is much more, um, you know, robust than that. The starting components, are you starting with sterile? Are you starting with non-sterile? Um, whether or not st sterility testing is actually performed or not. Um, and then the storage conditions, what's the packaging and the temperature? So these things affect stability from a sterility standpoint. So um, comparisons, if we're looking, this is sort of a quick recap or reference for the current USP 797. And uh, just moving along, oh, whoops, moving along this new concept or this um, from 2019 and now carried over here that the, the category one, we've got a, uh, a room temperature of 12 hours and um, refrigerated at 24 hours. 
or less. So um, that, that's sort of the new established limit for those. Now, category two is uh, a bit more involved and sort of teased out, just depends on where you fall. So again, we're, we're from our risk assessment, we're, we're trying to consider, are we autoclaving these and it's a terminal sterilization sequence, then that's going to have a longer beyond use date. If it's, you know, from, from filtration or it's just sterile to sterile, that's going to have a shorter beyond use date. So study these, um, you know, they are the limits. They are not just your defaults to assign. And, um, you know, it's just important to understand the, the concept of how these came about. Category three is the major change here from the remanded chapter. So this didn't exist in 2019, but here we are 2021. This is the proposed revision, it's the major change here. So if you are gonna be doing aseptic processing of a category three, you have to conduct those sterility tests. Your cap at room temperature is 60, refrigerated is 90, frozen is 120. And if you are autoclaving or doing some other terminal sterilization technique, you can go up to 180 days. Um, but remember, there's all these new hoops to jump uh, through. So these additional requirements, they include, you have to test the sterility, you've got to test endotoxins if applicable, uh, frequent personnel qualification, you've got to have that sterile garb, it's got, you've got to be covered head to toe, so that's the bunny suits, um, and you have more frequent spore settle use of weekly and a much more frequent EM program, and that stability indicating method has got to be on board. And remember, don't go beyond 250 final units. Uh, one of the last slides here, I promise I'm almost done, is um, multiple dose um, CSPs. So a couple things to remember here. It's, it just talks about aqueous multiple dose CSPs. You, not, you need to do this thing called antimicrobial effectiveness testing. So that's your preserve. You're testing that your preservative system actually works. Um, but anyway, this the CSP, it must be used within the beyond use date limit and or up to 28 days after the initial puncture if supported by your USP 51, which is the antimicrobial effectiveness test, uh, whichever is shorter. And then if you're doing the ophthalmics that don't have a preservative in it, you must be within the beyond use date limit. And then, um, you know, beyond when you open it, you got to use it within 24 hours if stored at room temperature or 72 hours, whichever is shorter. Um, so submitting comments, I know I'm racing through to, to get done. Um, USP is, I, I feel like they're doing a good job in trying to get the word out, but comments are happening right now. So everything that I just mentioned, if you don't like something, if you're confused by something, um, you want more information about something, or you just have a better idea about something, <laughs> submit your comment. You have till January 31st. I gave a couple of um, URL links here, um, but, but you are welcome to go and, and submit your comments through that, that portal and they'll ask you your information and they'll, you need to be very specific in your comments so, so they can actually uh, take action or consider it. Now, remember these changes are not official. They are not enforceable. They, uh, we are still in this comment period. I would expect that USP as usual has to read all of the comments after they are, are provided. That could take a few months, like uh, I, don't, I don't know how long that would take, but then, then there's gonna be another um, period. So. I guess um, if I were to, you know, bet, I would say maybe by late 2022 would be the earliest that these would be implemented. Um, but, you know, there, there could be reasons for not. We, we need to see. So I guess at this time, I know some questions were asked during, but if there's any other questions, um, I'd be happy to try to answer. I know we're pretty much out of time, but please uh, go ahead and um, contact us at least at our URL website, twotreesconsulting.com. If I wasn't able to get to your question or you were a bit shy to ask it in the group, that's totally fine. Um, just reach out and we will try to help set you up. Awesome. Thank you so much, Amy. Um, that was a wealth of information. Uh, the seven, nine stuff is not my area of expertise. And so I do not envy any of those pharmacies that are doing that. Uh, you know, it is a good business opportunity because a lot of people are getting out with, you know, the stricter it gets. And if you're willing to accommodate those, you know, a lot of business can come your way. So, um, you know, non-sterile is, is generally where I live most of the time. And you're right. A lot of those were in line with the previous, uh, recommendations, but there were some changes, some unique, some, some different changes in there. I noticed like, uh, I know the fixed oil suspensions 
are ones that we used to do a lot of, and those were used to be good for 180 days, but it looks like now under the new guidelines, even though they're not aqueous, but because they're liquid, they will be 90 days now. So uh, there's, there's, there's definitely some little nuances, changes in there. And I think the important thing is we'll post the uh, comment link in the actual link uh, in the recording of this. So people can easily find how to make a comment. And please, if you have questions, reach out to Two Trees Consulting. Uh, we'll post their information in there as well so that we can make sure that we're taking care of all of our compounding pharmacies and that you understand these and you have a chance to comment. Because again, like you said, these are not enforceable. These are not final and improved yet. However, if you don't comment now, don't complain later. Uh, you've, you missed your window. So thank you so much, Amy. Thank you, May. Thank you, everybody over at the team at Two Trees Consulting. Uh, really appreciate this. And that website, one more time, is the number two. So the number two, Trees consulting.com and uh, they'll route the questions over to Amy uh, and we'll get you taken care of. And if you have any other needs for compounding, go ahead and give them a call. They have a wonderful team over there. I definitely use them as one of my go-to experts when, when I don't know the answer myself, definitely uh, we'll go to them. So thank you, Amy. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this content valuable, here are four ways I can help you have a more profitable pharmacy for free. One, join my free group at lisasrxgroup.com. Two, get the latest strategies at diversifyrx.com forward slash blog. Three, watch helpful videos at lisasyt.com. Four, hit that subscribe button and please be sure to leave us a five-star review so we can help more pharmacy owners and bring those insights back to you. Becoming a pharmacy badass is proud to be a part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>